Hebrews 20.20, we see Jesus. Increment 63, and we'll be going one more time to Hebrews chapter 2, verse, well, probably 18. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We know that your word is forever settled in heaven. We know that the eternal word became flesh, and as he endured the cross, he became sin, that we would become the righteousness of God in him. So we stand before you with great boldness, come before your throne from which you dispense endless grace to find grace to help in time of need. Our time of need is whenever we approach the word, because we're in need of your help, your illumination, your insight. So we pray now that through the word, you'll turn the attention of every listener to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. <clears throat> Recently, while walking around in my neighborhood, I saw, as might be expected, lots of lawn signs advertising the preferences of various households for one candidate or another in this upcoming election. Along with these signs, I noted that a few of them listed a series of aphorisms or sayings or mottos that I presume are supposed to be taken for granted as being indisputable truth. Among the platitudes I read on some of these signs were, kindness is everything and science is real. I was particularly attentive to that one. Science is real. So to that, as I continue to walk, I ask the question for reflection. Onset. Is that so? It seems that people take this to be true today in the same way that a Bible believer believes and proclaims that Jesus of Nazareth has risen from the dead. And... If you're ever going to study Bernard Lonergan, I recommend volume 17. There's a lot of different articles there. Bernard Lonergan was asked a question after a lecture, a lecture entitled Merging Horizons, System, Common Sense, Scholarship. He gave this lecture on February 2nd, 1971 at Campion college on the Regina campus of the University of Saskatchewan. We know that because, thankfully, editors have been compiling just about everything he ever said or wrote. The question has the same tone that one picks up in a press conference today, a little accusatory. Sometimes they get a lot accusatory. It went like this. The question was, wouldn't you say that the picture of the scientist that you have drawn is idealized and unrealistic. Lonergan's response was this. I agree, he said. I wouldn't have attempted tonight to talk about the sciences here. I just dropped them in by way of a contrast as a different type of understanding in which an impersonal approach is achieved, a collective approach. Then he said, science can be beautifully wrong, 
on fundamental things. Up to 1926, most physicists considered it scientific to affirm a mechanist determinism. And quantum theory just shot that right down. But the individual scientist also has to be a man of common sense or he won't know enough to come in out of the rain. And he should be a scholar, at least in his own field. Now, even since then, 1971, quantum theory has also been challenged by vertical causality. The point is, science is real, yes, as a discipline, as a human discipline. But people are saying science is real today as if it's the ultimate reality. It is not. Moreover, science is constantly changing and challenging its own former hypotheses and conclusions. The conclusions of scientists or the conclusions of science, and this is usually what non-scientific people say, are sometimes called fixed or settled. That ends a discussion. If you want to have a discussion about anything today, including climate science, people will say, well, the science is settled. And that means shut up. You have no opinion that counts with me. So people say science on such and such a matter is settled. That's another word. And they use the same certitude as the psalmist who said, and I love this verse, in prayer to God, thy word is settled in heaven. Psalm 119.18. Make that Psalm 119.89. Sorry, Psalm 119.89. Other translations read, your word is firmly fixed. So I guess we can say God's word is fixed. God's word is settled. Fixed or settled, however, to the devotee of science means that science on such and such a subject cannot be challenged. They're more dogmatic even than gospel preachers sometimes. That is, non-scientific exponents of science. A person who really understands science would never say the science is settled. Science is never settled. The word of God is forever settled. So there are many such aphorisms that have become platitudes, such as science is real. They're circulating in the atmosphere over which the prince ruler of the present present cosmic age has strong influence. This makes it all the more urgent to turn our attention to what and to whom is real and to who, or we should say, to whom is reality or to who is reality. He is the eternal word and his name is Jesus. And one of the best ways I can think of to turn our attention to him who is real is through the study of a little homily called Hebrews, a biblical homily. 
Now, in our study most recently, we've been considering the subject of propitiation slash expiation. So going from dancing around the fire on this subject to jumping right in, and by that I mean our God is a consuming fire, expiation is the aspect of the purification for sins that the Son accomplished by putting sin away. Propitiation is the aspect of the purification for sins that the Son has accomplished by which God is forever satisfied that a sufficient offering was made for sins. Now we know from Hebrews 2.17 that propitiation and intercession are acts which are performed by our merciful and faithful archpriest. Propitiation. That's typologically or in figure or metaphor depicted by the high priest who once a year went into the Holy of Holies made with hands and sprinkled the blood of the animal who was holocausted by a whole, whole burnt offering on the cross or on the altar rather he sprinkles the blood of that victim before and against the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is hilasterion, which means propitiatory. We're not going to go into all that in great detail because the writer doesn't. Though we could, but that would take a year or two. Propitiation and intercession, bottom line, are acts which are performed by our merciful and faithful archpriest. And these two acts are also the subject in Romans. And we came to Hebrews through Romans. Romans, even though in that entire epistle, Jesus is never referred to as a priest or as archpriest. You can't find that, in fact, in any of the Pauline writings. But the implication is very strong there in Romans that he is that, that he is the great archpriest, especially if we consider his role in propitiation, expiation, and intercession, which Romans points up very powerfully. In fact, Romans 3.19 to 26, and if you're listening and can do so, I would turn in your Bibles to this, Romans 3, 19 through 26. It's a crucial section of a dialectic of contradictory viewpoints, as we've studied it in reading Romans with the light on. The difference, the contradiction is between Paul's viewpoint and that of his formidable and evidently famous opponent. The opponent proclaims a so-called gospel, of justification by the works of the law, human performance of the works of the law. Paul preaches a gospel of justification, and I want to say so do I. Paul preaches a gospel of justification by unconditional and uncontingent grace through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and according to the mercy of God. In Romans 3.19, after it was shown from the scriptures, something that both Paul and his opponent agreed with from 3.10 to 18, all sinned, 
all the human race. There's none that does good. There are none that are righteous. After demonstrating from the scriptures that all sinned, the opponent concludes in 319 that the whole world, therefore, deserves God's wrath and that God's wrath, he implies, can only be averted and human beings justified in his eyes by the works of the law. Paul knows he's about to make that point in this mock debate, but before he can make that point again, the opponent of Paul already made it in Romans 2.13 that we are justified by the works of the law, and that that justification will be demonstrated in the day of judgment and the last day, etc. But before he can make that point again that he made already in 2.13 of Romans, through a quotation of Psalm 143.2, which is the Septuagint 142.2, Paul interrupts. That happens sometimes in debates, believe it or not. I don't know if you understand that, but Interruptions happen in debates, or rather, we could say he interjects and presents the most powerful pivot in his debate, and that the same time he nucleates the essence of the real gospel. Very good news indeed. So I want to read this from 319 to 26. The opponent says this after the conclusion from the scriptures that all sinned, all are unrighteous, none does good, etc., The opponent says, and the whole world will be shown to deserve God's wrathful judgment. And he's about to say, unless we go out and tell them that they can be justified by the works of Moses' law. He goes to quote Psalm 143.2, which is a pivotal verse in Romans. In verse 20 of Romans 3, he says, for, this is still the opponent talking, no human being will be, And that literally says, all flesh will not be justified in his sight. So, he's about to say, except through the works of the law, but Paul interjects. It's kind of a polite interruption, but it is an interruption. Paul interjects by deeds prescribed by the law. That's right. No human being will be justified by Deeds prescribed by the law, Paul says. For through the law, Paul adds, even more controversially, as a slap in the face of the other of his opponent, basically, for through the law comes only the consciousness of sin. Now, this is addressed in Hebrews, where the conscience is purified from sin and from dead works, but we won't go there yet. So through the law comes only the consciousness or the awareness of sin, not justification at all. And this begins one of the most astonishing pivots in all of history in terms of debate. Paul, from 321 to 326, and I'm going to read it just as I translated it in our study of Romans, at which took a lot of grueling hours to get this expanded translation. 21 to 26 reads this way. Paul is speaking throughout. However, now, apart from the law, the saving righteousness of God has been manifested, which is fully attested by the law and the prophets. That is, the righteousness of God 
through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Please note that. Through the faithfulness, the faith, the fidelity, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, revealed to all who have been gifted with faith. For there is no distinction, Paul says. It makes no difference whether one is a Jew or a Gentile, is what he means. God's going to show mercy upon all of them in 1132 of Romans. 23, for all sin. That means all are under the power of that cosmic adversary named sin and are complicit with sin, all sin, and fall hopelessly short of the glory of God. Verse 24, and all, the same all he's talking about in 23, he talks about in 24. All are justified unconditionally by God's grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed, look at verse 25, whom God displayed publicly as the expiation, propitiation, that's the figuratively depicted by the blood of the holocausted lamb being sprinkled before and against the cover of the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, whom God displayed publicly as the expiation, propitiation, listen, through the faithfulness again, through the faithfulness, that's Jesus' faithfulness, not your faith or mine, through the faithfulness that climaxed with his blood, that's Jesus' sacrificial death. For the demonstration of God's righteousness, God, I say, who passed over the sins that were previously committed, that is, before the cross, before the atoning work of Christ, sins were passed over until they were judged at the cross, we could say. And then verse 26, by his forbearing patience. Yes, I said for a demonstration of God's saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis. That's the juncture of the two ages, which we call the Agona. And we're all doing a tour of duty in the Agona right now to show that he is perfectly just and the justifier of that one by means of his own faithfulness. What's being talked about here is Jesus himself. In fact, the name Jesus is the last word in this verse, namely Jesus. So 326 says, by his forbearing patience, yes, I said, for the demonstration of God's saving righteousness and justice in the present time of crisis, the juncture of the two ages, to show that he is perfectly just and the justifier of that one by means of his own faithfulness. He justifies Jesus Christ through Jesus Christ's faithfulness. And in justifying that one, he justifies all the human race in him. So it should read, he is just, God is just, perfectly just, as well as the justifier of that one, capital O-N-E, by means of his own faithfulness, namely, Jesus. That's the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, though no reference is made to the assuaging of God's wrath... In Paul's depiction of propitiation, wrath was mentioned by the opponent as that which the whole world deserved. So the words of C.K. Barrett are still ringing in my ears. 
we can hardly doubt, and here are his words from the last message, we can hardly doubt that expiation has, as it were, the effect of propitiation. The sin that might justly have excited God's wrath is expiated at God's will and therefore no longer does so. So we would say that the sin that might have excited God's wrath is most certainly not expiated by the works of the law, as the formidable opponent of Paul would say, but rather by the expiation, propitiation of Jesus, whom Hebrews reveals to be our great archpriest. Again, Thomas Torrance was certainly right when he wrote, quote, Propitiation is holy, at W-H-O-L-L-Y, from beginning to end the movement of God's forgiving and expiating love, whereby in the initiative and freedom of his own divine being, he acts both from the side of God as God toward man and from the side of man as man toward God. That's Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God as God toward man, and he is man as man toward God. That's what it means that he's the only mediator between God and man, that he's the mediator of a new covenant, etc., in Hebrews. Another scriptural passage, and I thought I'd pick this one up, even though it extends the message by four pages, the way I've added some of these things. Another scriptural passage reveals the prominent place of mercy and faithfulness both of which are rooted in God's great love and both of which are subjects or descriptors of Jesus Christ, our merciful and faithful high priest. So because of mercy and faithfulness, both of which are rooted in God's great love and because both describe Jesus as our great archpriest and are absolutely prominent in God's salvific plan, I want to give you this passage. It's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through Eight, another passage. We're going to go to one more in Romans 8 as we progress along the way here later. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you conducted yourselves according to this cosmic eon, according to the ruler of airborne spirits, the spirit now working in human sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the desires of our flesh, dutifully carrying out the desires of our flesh and of our thoughts. And by nature, we were children controlled by wrath, just like the rest. You see children controlled by wrath on the news every night. You have all summer burning things down, cursing, swearing, destroying police. And these are the same people who put signs up that there's no hate that belongs in this house while they personally hate the president and everyone who ever voted for him. There's a lot of that going around today. But you see wrath, children of wrath, stirred up by the prince of the power of the air. They are destructive and they are irrational, emotional, and irrational. But Paul says, don't get all self-righteous on your high horse. We were all, by nature, children controlled by wrath. All of us. The human race is. And so, again, among whom we all once lived. And by nature, we were children controlled by wrath, just like the rest. 
But God, verse 4, who is wealthy in mercy because of the great love with which he loves us, even when we were dead in transgressions, this is mind-boggling, even when or while, we could say, we were dead in transgressions, made us alive with Christ. While we were dead in sins, he made us alive in Christ. Then he says this little phrase, by grace you are saved. That's unconditional grace. That's uncontingent, meaning it didn't require a response from you. It's grace based on a response from one who stood in for you in faithfulness. Verse 6, not only that, he raised us up together and seated us together in the heavens in Christ Jesus to put on exhibition in the coming ages the extraordinary wealth of his grace in his benevolence and beneficence toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through the faith, the fidelity, and the faithfulness that is of Jesus Christ. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. In this remarkable passage, there is no overt reference to the propitiation, expiation aspect of the cross of Jesus Christ. No overt reference. But there is certainly an accent on God's mercy and faithfulness, both of which are rooted in the great love with which God loves us and which he exemplified and embodied in Jesus, our archpriest, according to Hebrews. Note that there is a mention of wrath in the phrase children controlled by wrath, as there is a mention of wrath in Romans 3.19 when the opponent of Paul says the whole world deserves it. As God removed his wrath, which we might, which may have excited, we could say, been excited against the sinfulness of the whole world, he also removes the wrath that controls us in the old man. We might think our anger is somehow showing that we're strong people, but it shows that we're weaklings. Many today are demonstrating that they're controlled by wrath. They fail to recognize that no righteous or worthy goal, especially what God considers to be righteous, is ever attained through the anger of man. James 1.20, the anger of man never accomplishes the righteous purpose of God. Jesus perfectly fulfills and infinitely exceeds the types of the old order of priesthood by having made expiation, propitiation for the sins of the people of the whole world. What is more, he now appears on behalf, on our behalf, he appears on our behalf in the presence of the ineffable majesty of his father in the highest district of the heavens. We can easily fly, therefore, from Hebrews 2.17 to Hebrews 9, 24, 26, and 28, where we hear of three appearings. This is the next gear of my message today. Three appearings of Christ in chronological and logical order. Three appearings of Christ go like this. One, Christ appeared 
That's the perfect passive indicative form of phanerao, P-H-A-N-E-R-O, long-o. Christ appeared once and for all in the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. That to me is the central verse, really, the heart of Hebrews as well as Hebrews 9.14, but that's 9.26. In logical order, chronological order, not in order they're listed in the Bible, but in chronological and logical order, Hebrews 9.26 is the first of three appearings. He appeared once at the juncture of the ages, right where the cross is, to put away sin by the offering of himself. Secondly, second appearing, Jesus appears not having entered a sanctuary made with hands, which is only a facsimile of the real one, but into heaven itself, where he now, now, N-U-N, nun, now, appears in the presence of God for us. More precisely, Hebrews 9.24 reads this way from the Greek I translated this this morning. For Christ did not enter the man-made holy places, mere figures, and that Greek word for figures is antitupa, where we get the word antitype, A-N-T-I-T-U-P-A. Antitype, figures or antitypes of the true. But into heaven itself, now to appear, this time the word appear is emphanizo, E-M-P-H-A-N-I-Z-O. Now to appear, cross or face-to-face with God in our behalf. That's the second of three appearings. It's a present ongoing appearing in heaven by Jesus, our archpriest, on our behalf, face-to-face with the Father. It should be noted, and at this point I want to go to Romans 8 to show a correlation, but it, it should be noted that Jesus entered into the holy places in heaven itself on the merits of his own blood through which he secured everlasting redemption. If you back into Hebrews 9.12, you'll see that. The blood groove that I call the blood groove of the sword of the word is discerned throughout these verses. Romans 3.25 compared with Romans 5.9, the blood groove. Hebrews 9.12 compared with 13.20, the blood groove. It goes throughout the length of the sword of the word. It lightens the sword for us to make it easy to wield in our spiritual combat. So the PT is very proficient in typological exposition. He could show off with that forever if he wanted to, but he doesn't. He is proficient in typological exposition as is events throughout this homily. He uses the words for antitypes, A-N-T-I-T-U-P-A, right in Hebrews 9.24. Now, antitype, so that you're not confused, simply means the counterpart of a type. It's what's compared to a type. It can be used either way. In other words, the earthly tabernacle can be the type and heaven the antitype, or we could say that heaven is the type and the earthly tabernacle is the antitype. It simply means that there's a type-antitype correspondence between the figurative and the real, the true and the earthly, or the man-made and the heavenly. So the earthly tabernacle can be a type, and the heavenly an antitype, or vice versa. 
the sequence of the PT in his typological exposition of Christ appearing to expiate sin and then going into heaven's holy of holies to in effect, in effect, sprinkle the blood, his blood against the cover of the ark is similar to Paul's doctrinal exposition. Remember, the Hebrews writer is doing a typological exposition. Paul does a straight-on doctrinal exposition, and you can compare them. And so he does a doctrinal exposition in Romans 3, 21 to 26, followed much later by Romans 8, 31 to 39. Let's look at that passage because I think you'll see that it's relevant and pertinent to and correlating with what we're teaching here. Romans 8, 31 through 39. I'm going to read the whole thing. My translation expanded from when we did reading Romans with the light on. Remember, we came to Hebrews through Romans. What can we, that's all of us, including my opponent, Paul says, say against these things? Nothing at all. If God is for us, and he most certainly is for us in all the ways previously specified, who can be effectively against us? No one at all is the answer. Since indeed God did not spare his very own son, but freely handed him over for us all, how will he not freely grant us all things with him who is not only the son, but the heir of all things. Who, verse 33, will bring an effective accusation, we could say an accusation that sticks, against God's elect? Will God, the one who justifies? The thought is unthinkable. Who is the one who will condemn? Christ, the one who died, and beyond even that, who was raised up and who is now and forever at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf. Romans 8.34, correlate it with Romans with Hebrews 9.24 and with Hebrews 7.16 and 7.25 for that matter. So Paul then says, who is going to, beyond that, who's going to condemn us? Christ who died, he's the one who was raised up after he died for our justification. It came about through his faithful death for us. Is he going to condemn us? He who is now and forever at the right hand of God advocating on our behalf? Of course not. The thought is unthinkable. If we were, if these debaters were a little hot-headed here, Paul would say, of course not, you clown. In the meantime, until the last judgment, when we fully experience our justification in the light of glory, until then, until then, in what I call the meantime, in the mean time, who or what will separate us from the love of Christ. Somebody who cancels us? Somebody who doxes us, trolls us, shames us, maligns us, slanders us, kills us? That's next. Well, no, I'm, that's exposition. Who will separate us in the meantime from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, 
destitution or war. Some of these are things Americans haven't experienced yet. We never would have said plague. and we're, Oh, that will never happen in the USA. We might have said that 10 years ago, but whoa. I was born in the middle of a plague. It wasn't called that, but it was when polio was extremely dangerous. When I got my tonsils out at age six, my roommate was a four-year-old boy with polio who had braces on his legs and a brace holding up his body. And so who will separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation, anguish, persecution, hunger, destitution, or war? As it is written, because of you or because of our identification and association with you, Lord, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. That's from Psalm 44.22. You should be used to this by now. LXX 43.23. Verse 37 says, No! In all these things we are hyper-conquerors through him who loved us. And that's God who reconciled us to himself while we were still his enemies. And that's Christ who died for us while we were ungodly. And about... Well, let's just continue this. For I have been persuaded, said Paul, beyond doubt that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons nor things in the present or things about to be, nor powers above, nor powers below, nor any governmental institution will ever have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So that's correlating with our passages in Hebrews. The third appearing, though, in Hebrews is found in Hebrews 9.28. The first one, remember, he appeared once at the juncture of the ages to put away sin by the offering of himself. The second appearing, he appears now in the ineffable presence of God on our behalf. Third, the third appearing in Hebrews is found in Hebrews 9.28, which says, So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time, not to make expiation for sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hebrews 9.28. And there's a lot of things, people, and beings waiting for him that don't even know they're waiting for him. So in the three appearings, Jesus is referred to as Christ. And again, this is still an echo of the last part of for one reigns 235, otherwise known as 1 Samuel 235, which says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, and everything that is in my heart he will do. And I will make for him a faithful house, and he will go in the authority of my Christ all the days. And all these appearances, Christ is the referent. He's the one referred to. So we're progressing together, and I'm supposed to be leading from the front. I don't do that perfectly all the time, but let's look at the map. Let's stop in a clearing and look at a map. We're presently located in the meantime on the map. Between the appearing of Christ to put away sin 
and the appearing a second time of Christ when he comes without sin to bring salvation. As I've said before, the present time is a mean time. But this mean time is not without an appearing of Christ on our behalf. Moreover, this appearing is one which we, in which we can even now see Jesus. We see Jesus. So don't get so caught up in waiting for him to come back that you don't see him now advocating on your behalf as we move through this agona. We're in a tour of duty. We're not deserters. We're moving forward. So this meantime is not without an appearing of Christ in our behalf. Moreover, this appearing is one in which we can see Jesus with the enlightened eyes of our heart. Now, you say, what's so important about this is everybody's going there. Who said everybody's going there? There's a few who are going to be rewarded with life in the heavens while the rest live on earth. I'm going to throw that bomb in there for you right now. So you don't think there's a reward for continuing through the adversities? You're dead wrong. There's one that will boggle your mind that eyes haven't seen, ears haven't even heard about, and has never entered into the imaginings of, the man, of man's heart. So don't give me the stuff about, well, if everybody's going, why do we push forward? Cut it out. Now, this appearing on our behalf is one which we can see Jesus with the enlightened eyes of our heart. We see Jesus, in Ephesians 1.18, with eyes that are enlightened. It's with the eyes of the heart, enlightened by insight. And that's why we come to church, or that's why we listen to the word when we're not in church. It's with the eyes of the heart, enlightened by insight, that we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. With these eyes, we see him interceding for us and always ready to help us throughout our tour of duty in the agona, which is the ongoing clash of the ages. What the archpriests of the Aaronic, A-A-R-O-N-I-C, or the Levitical order of priests did symbolically leading to the ceremonial purification of the people called Israel, Jesus, who became a faithful and merciful high priest in things pertaining not to mere ritual, but to God himself, did really and with finality, leading to the purification for the sins of the whole world and the purification of the conscience the innermost part of man, Hebrews 9.14 and 10.22, the conscience of the worshipers purified whom the Spirit gifts with faith. The worshipers whom the Spirit gifts with faith. In this way, the eternal Son whom God generates out of his own substance and consubstantial with himself was perfected or completed vocationally as a merciful and faithful archpriest. In the act of this completion of the Son, Jesus became perfected as the visible self-revelation of the invisible God who is merciful 
and faithful in his unrestricted and unconditional love for the undeserving, especially. This visible self-revelation of God is the dramatic disclosure of God's self-dedication to all of humanity and to all of creation, which also comes into its completion in Christ. This self-dedication of God, hardly ever demonstrated in evangelist messages. They want to tell you to be dedicated to God and dedicate yourself to him. They never talk about God's dedication to you, self-dedication. That's the gospel. The self-dedication of God is demonstrated especially with regard to those who believe. In other words, especially those who believe. To those whom some people call the faithful. I don't like that word. I have a slight aversion to how some people use the term the faithful because they seem to say it to describe faithful people without much reference to Jesus, who, over and above, is the faithful, and without whom no one is faithful. Jesus is the living proof of the absolute and total self-dedication of the living God to the world. He is the living epistle of God's self-sacrificial, redeeming, reconciling, rectifying love. God, for whom and through whom all things exist, deemed that it would be fitting in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, that he would make the founder of salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. Hebrews 2.10. For the same reason, the founder of salvation, Jesus, was bound to become like his siblings in every way in order to be a merciful and faithful archpriest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation expiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself has suffered and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. That's in the Agona. So see, now listen, I'm going to close, and this is the last part of this message, and I know it's a longer one as you, than usual, but I'm, this is running up to our next service, which will be culminating with a communion service, a remote communion. See here how the logic of Hebrews 2.10 carries on through Hebrews 2.18. This subsection, 210 to 18, is bracketed by references to the sufferings of the founder of our great salvation. That great salvation consists not only of an eternal redemption that will be finalized in a stupendous destiny, in a new creation, and in a future world which will be subjected to redeemed human beings. But that great salvation also consists of an experience of mercy and the discovery of grace in the very exigencies and vicissitudes of life in our contingent humanity. That means right now in these mortal bodies and in this evil age. Even here. And even now, we can experience the help and support of Jesus, our merciful and faithful high priest, archpriest. In Hebrews 2.18, it says this, For since he himself has suffered, 
and was tempted while being tested, he is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. In Hebrews 4, 15 to 16, it goes on to say, for we do not have an archpriest who is not able to sympathize with our weaknesses, having himself been tempted while being tested without yielding to sin. So let us approach with bold confidence the throne from which God dispenses grace in order to take hold of mercy, Elias, and find grace to help in time of need. So like Peter who walked on water on the permission and at the behest of Jesus, we may panic and sink under the waves once in a while. But in answer to our plea, save me, He takes hold of our hand and lifts us and keeps us from succumbing to the adversary and to the adversities of the agona. I've experienced this a thousand times, as I know many of you have. This taking hold of mercy and finding grace to help in time of need is just like Peter taking hold of the strong grip of the hand of Jesus Christ, lifting him up out of the drowning waters. It's the present experience of a salvation that though so great as to be forever is so great that it reaches down into the here and now in this evil age. Now the lemma, L-E-M-M-A, that's the basic form of a verb that's found in glossaries or lexicons. The lemma for the word meaning to help here, and I try to be exegetical in the midst of the rest of this, is boetheo. That's B-O, long E, T-H-E-O. It's kind of related to the word Boethius. Much later in his homily, the psalmist is quoted by the PT, and he says, so we boldly say, the Lord is my helper, Boethos. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6 is quoted here, Septuagint 117.6. Notice in Hebrews 9.26 that we just looked at before, Jesus offers himself. In Hebrews 9.28 it says, he was offered. So he acts in offering himself, but here he's offered, that is by God. God loved the world so much that he offered his eternal son, and the son loved us so much that he offered himself. So God loved the world so much that he gave the world his son. He loved his son so much that he gave his son the world. And God loves you so much that he gave you all things because he's given you his son. And how shall he not with him not give you all things? If you have Christ, you have everything. A dear friend of mine recently quoted to me. Remember, the homily that we are studying involves an alternation, an oscillation back and forth, we could say, between exposition and exhortation. And that's what I'm doing as a PT. The scales tip toward exhortation in Hebrews, as the author calls this whole discourse of his a word of exhortation. Please stay tuned one more minute because I want to tell you about this whole section here and then we'll close. The literary rhetorical device of alliteration. That's several words beginning with the same letter or containing the same 
letter, consonant especially. Assonance is the containing of a vowel sound over and over again. But the literary rhetorical device that gets the attention of the reader or the listener helps identify the beginning and end of the section of this homily. We saw how the very first verse, first, I called it pies in the face. The letter pi is used over and over again. So literally the first opening verse of Hebrews pops. It pops, as we like to say. It goes, and I can't pronounce Greek very well, so don't judge me on that. I don't think the Lord will, I hope. Palumerus, meros, kai, palutropos, palai, hotheos, lalesas, tois patresen, and tois prophetes. The words palumeros, palutropos, palai, patresen, and prophetes are used here. It pops. It gets your attention. So the writer starts right off hitting you with pies in the face. But Hebrews 2.18 ends with four pies in the face. A special, I call it a similar pie dash alliteration. It says en ho gar peponthen autes perestais dunatai tois Perezomenos boethesi. In other words, he uses the word peponthen and then perestheis for test and tempt and then perasmenois all together. Pops again. And so what is he saying? What we have here is a section of Hebrews that we just finished. Hebrews 1.1 beginning with pops of pies and Hebrews 2.18 ends also with an alliteration, pie alliteration. So we have it popping. So the end of a section, we've just reached the end of a section. Hebrews 3.1 goes into a whole, wholly other section. And it's an exhortation section. So if we connect the first and the last verse of this larger section, Hebrews 1.1 through 2.18, we have the picture of the eternal Son of God in whom God spoke with decisive finality in these last days, and who, having been tempted while being tested as he suffered, is able to help those who are being tempted while being tested. If attentive, the readers of this homily would become intensely aware that they have an extraordinary helper with a capital H in the time in which at least some of them were being tempted to give up on a confession of Jesus as the son of God under pressure of social marginalization and maligning. We call it today cancellation, doxing, trolling, shaming, whatever it is. We live in a culture that's riddled with that crap. And so there's temptation to ease up and back off from a confession that is becoming less and less popular. And while people say they love everybody in Arabic and Hispanic and English language in their little signs, they hate you if you espouse the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so don't back off. The PT, as well as any PT that's worth his salt, and worth his salt is simply a figure of speech which means He's competent at his profession. Any PT worth his salt urges his hearers or readers to an intensified attentiveness to Jesus 
and an increased direction of his hearers to God, which requires the redirection of the whole person. There's much talk today among believers. They all met on the mall in Washington. They talked about the need for repentance on the part of God's people for the healing of our land. Well, what is repentance? If not the redirection of the whole person in attentiveness to Jesus, who unlike science is not only real, but reality itself. And who unlike science is not changing like science. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Reality itself is Jesus. Now, This trend of doctrine is going to lead us forward to increment 64 on October 11th, which will culminate in a remote communion service. And by that I mean wherever you are, when you listen to increment 64, you can alone or with a spouse or a friend or a partner or with your family, you can participate in communion. So get the elements together. All are welcome to participate, and that's our next service. It will be increment 64. It will be up on the website by, if not earlier than, October 11th. So whenever you listen to October 11th, increment 64, it's going to culminate with a communion service. So we'll all be together in it. So, Father, we thank you for this opportunity once again. We pray that you will direct our hearts, our intentions, our attentiveness, to unchanging reality that's personified in Jesus, our Savior. This is so desperately needed in our times in which idolatry is pervasive in our culture and our nation, and in fact the nations of the world, are under a worldwide period of testing, intensified testing. So strengthen believers, strengthen us in our tour of duty, Father, so that we can be honorably discharged and honorably rewarded in your presence when all is said and done. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.